Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Recently, a gold award was given by the New Zealand Cinematographer Association to one of our leading camera wizards, Simon Raby. He received it for the documentary film The Heart Dances, The Journey of the Piano, The Ballet. But shortly, the rest of the world will see Simon Raby's work in the new wetter blockbuster, Mortal Engines. It's a long way from his early beginnings as a budding pop star in the early 80s. That's Simon Raby, pop star, but music's loss has been film's gain. Simon's track record is astonishingly various. Documentaries, independent films, genre pictures like the notorious Deathgasm, and most of all his work with the Peter Jackson machine, from Lord of the Rings to Mortal Engines. Simon Raby, welcome to the programme. Thanks very much, Simon. So, were you always going to be a filmmaker? Um, I think so. When I was very young, I quite liked the idea of being a doctor, but... Being inherently lazy, I discovered how many years were involved in the training and I sort of had second thoughts about it. But from about the age of 12, I'd, I'd, I'd been interested in cameras and Dad let me use his uh, standard eight movie camera when I was a kid. And I, I was a big Ray Harry Horseman fan in those days, so I started by making stop-motion animation epics on the on the dining room table. I know that you made your first, you directed your first film at age sixteen, apparently. Uh, yeah, we'd, we made a we made a twenty-five minute short, which was called "The Social Life of a Wombat," which was basically a rip-off of the Monty Python sketches uh, with my <laughs> future brother-in-law. <laughs> but then after that, um, I was still at school, and we made um, we made it. We started making a film called "The Third Phase," which was like a spy action thriller, all played by <laughs> un- unlikely performances by 16 and 17 year olds and that was like 1977 78 I suppose it took us about a year and a half of weekends to make it but then having taken a little sort of sidetrack into uh, pop stardom and then deciding against that you uh, you became a freelance cinematographer and sound guy you 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 worked in both areas well, you know, it was actually the music video itself that got me into the industry proper. I'd been working at a place called Vidcom in their film lab. It was my first job in sort of getting towards the industry, if you like. And uh, while I was in the film lab, I started dabbling with playing music, and I had a record label called Ferret Records and recorded this song. And um, And the people at Vidcom said, oh, we really like the song. If you want to make a music video, we'll give you the studio and the crew on the weekend, and you write it and produce it, and we'll help you make it. So we went ahead and did that. You know, it had got screened already with pictures, and... I sold all my records, and not long after that, the film lab was sold to Atlab in Australia, mm. and um, all the team there were offered either different positions in Atlab, and they offered me a, a trainee position at Vidcom in their production side. So I started a six-year sort of process where I did just about everything at Vidcom. I did sound post-production, sound production, gaffer assist, grip assist, camera assist, and then ended up directing corporates and commercials with them. But there must have come a moment, I think, during that that time where it was pretty obvious to you and probably to other people that you were a cut above the usual sort of type of person who goes in there for work experience. I mean, did you have an idea that you had a gift in the camera department? 
Um, not so much a gift, but a passion, definitely, for mm. sure. And I had pretty clear ideas about how I like to light things, and I would look at other people's lighting and sort of internally criticise. And I guess I was quite ambitious in those days. And early on, you met Nikki Caro, I believe, um, who was one of the, the first people to really work with you. Yeah, well, I got a call out of the blue from her. It was about a year after I went freelance, because after VidCom, I left in 87 to go to the Soviet Union for six months to do sound for a documentary shoot in the Soviet Union. And then when I came back from that, I set up as a freelancer, and I had a sound kit from that documentary shoot, so I was, that was, sound was my meat and potatoes, and I wasn't really known at all as a, as a cinematographer. And then one day I got a call out of the blue from Nikki Caro, who she was doing her master's degree at Elim, and she said, you know, are you Simon Raby? You know, I'm doing this short film for my master's. Would you be interested in shooting it? And I went, well, I would love to, but I'm not quite sure why you're ringing me because no one knows me and you've got this long list of people that you could choose from. Why are you choosing me? And she said, well, you did that song Tag Along, didn't you, back in... Oh, and, wow. And I said, yes. She said, well, when I was at high school, we loved that song and we used to, <laughs> we used to play it all the time. She says, that's why I want you to do my first short film. I, I didn't tell her at the time I'd never shot any 16 mil. And the style she wanted to do was like German expressionist, kind of black and white, very extreme contrast. And so we did this process where we forced the, the negative, where you run it for longer in the bath and it makes it more contrasty, more grainy and more sensitive to light. But all the rushes in those days were processed at the National Film Unit in Wellington and we were shooting up in Auckland. So it would take a week before we got any of our footage back. So I kind of shot the film totally blind. I'd done a very quick sort of 20-foot test to see if the pushing of the neck was going to work. And then we just went into it, and I didn't see any of the footage until the film was finished. I know that you have a, uh, an interest in historic film styles, you know, the, the various looks that you associate with certain decades and things. I know that uh, particularly you had an interest in 70s-style camera work. I mean, is that a, a thing that, that all cinematographers have, an interest in the... the different types of film stock there are available? I think everyone comes from a different perspective. I mean, I grew up in the 70s, so I obviously have a, a fondness for films from the 70s because mm. that was quite formative for me. Often it's kind of collaboration with the director because I'm often responding to what the director's sort of feelings towards the project are. When I did Heaven with Scott Reynolds, he was quite specific about a certain 70s film look and we went out of our way to find a stock from that period. We actually found the last of its stock being produced in the world and use that for some of our exterior material for heaven because we wanted that kind of look. One question that we never ask whenever we talk to cinematographers is, what is the job of a cinematographer? I mean, a lot of people get very confused about what does a director do, what does a cinematographer do? What do you see as the job of a cinematographer, Simon? The job of a cinematographer is to translate the essence of a story and the emotions around the story into a look. So as a cinematographer, I'm in charge of the composition, the lighting... Uh, the movement of the camera. So there's three departments that I run. I run the camera department, which handle all the cameras and the lenses and the sorts of gear we're going to use, the filters and stuff, sorts of tra tripods we're using. The grips are in charge of moving the camera, whether it's a crane or a steady cam or a dolly. Uh, anything that requires heavy plant building is kind of grip territory. And the lighting department obviously is in charge of what lights we're using, what colours they are, how soft they are, how hard they are, how we mount them, where we get them, how we get them up there. So, in fact, I mean, very rarely do you actually touch the camera itself, do you? I, I like to operate. It's, mm. I mean, one of my, I think most cinematographers would agree that operating is one of the favourite parts of the job. But some jobs are just too big to do that. And on mortal engines, I had, there was no way I could operate as well as light. I had, like, three comms. I had a set of comms on my head and I had two in, one in each hand talking to three different departments constantly by remote. So... Um, it was too fast for me to be able to operate. I read somewhere uh, that a good cinematographer makes sure that every shot tells the story of the film. I mean, clearly, you know, that's pretty contentious. I mean, what do you think is, you know, your job, basically, when it comes to constructing the various shots for a film? 
if you're doing a narrative drama, then the script is what you're working off as the basis of how you're going to do something. So, I mean, I'm doing this in conjunction often with a director. Sometimes I'll do it before I meet the director, but I'll break the story down into beats, like how many beats in this scene need to be told? And I'm going, can this beat be told with this shot or does it need its own special thing? I mean, that's quite aside from the style of the shoot, but it's like, for me, cinematography is story. It's all about story, and in fact... Maybe in the 21st century, cinematography is kind of the dominant way we tell story these days. The one time that people tend to notice the work of a cinematographer is that very flash, one-shot thing. I mean, I remember there was a, uh, an Argentinian film called The Story in Their Eyes, which st- starts hovering above uh, a football match and ends up in a close-up of the, the guy being attacked by a dog. And the whole thing takes 10 minutes in wow. which it goes absolutely all over the place. I mean, clearly trickery was involved in this thing here. <laughs> I don't think that actually happened. But, I mean, that is a, um, th- there is a tendency to, to want to do that kind of show-off camera work, isn't there? I mean, I've, I've seen films that are nominally entirely made out of one shot. Mm. I think um, show-off is the right sort of phrase there. I mean, I, my, my approach to that is how does this serve the story? Like, the, I'm all for the one shot provided it's, telling enough story within it one shot. I'm not very interested in, in style for its own sake. How did you get involved with Peter Jackson? Because you've been involved with his major works ever since, well, going right back to Lord of the Rings, really, haven't you? I guess so, not really. I did Lord of the Rings, and then there was quite a long break, and then I, um, he asked me back to do the second unit directing on District 9, and then he asked me back to do Mortal Engines. So there's been, there's been break periods. But, I mean, I think Peter probably asked me to do Lord of the Rings because of the work I'd done on Scott's early films like Heaven and The Ugly. Now, you were involved in uh, Second Unit, and Second Unit is a very specific area, isn't it? It's the, uh, it's the part of the film that doesn't feature the lead actors. Is, is that a fair description of that job? It's a sometimes description of that job. It really depends on the film. A lot of the time, Second Unit is to do with you know, the things that don't involve main drama action. So there might be like explosions or things blowing up or people fighting. It can be close-up of objects. So it can be mundane stuff. But I found on Lord of the Rings because it was such a busy shoot and we were trying mm. to split the fellowship and the actors within the fellowship so much between several units, we often found ourselves doing drama as well. And my director on uh, Lord of the Rings was Jeff Murphy, so he was well-schooled in, in working, working drama as well. He drives, he drives it along, doesn't he, Jeff? I mean, he was famous for just getting on with it. He does like to get on with it, for sure. And he's, he's, he's a big Western fan, Jeff. He likes to shoot from the hip a lot. And so you look at Lord of the Rings and anything that you see from the waist is sort of usually a Jeff shot. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favourite shot in Lord of the Rings? I know I'm asking you to kind of select something Goodness. out of nine hours. It was a lot of, a lot of footage. <laughs> the first thing I shot in Lord of the Rings was the fight in the Tomb of Barnum with the Cave Troll. And so I have fond memories of that scene because it was, you know, Peter Kerr said, I want it to look like a war documentary, just make it look like a war doco. Oh, wow. And it was quite radical in those days. We were hand-holding stuff as well as steady camming, and that was quite a big deal for the VFX guys. That was a very enjoyable scene. It started off in a difficult way because we had originally anticipated a lot of the orcs, the small orcs that would come through the doorway would bounce off the walls and things like that. They were like, like crickets or something. And so we had all these mini tramps set up for them to bounce in and off the walls. But after breaking ankles, um, we decided that <laughs> it was going to take too long. We are going to run out of stunties too fast. It must be difficult to shoot um, stuff like that because so much of it is holes that will be filled later. Um, it is. It's just consultation, really. I mean, and you've read the script and you sort of... With Lord of the Rings, there was 
quite a substantial set of storyboards, like a pre-visualization of the film, um, which Peter sort of would come to or leave as he felt fit. Like, I think he had been a bit tired of the storyboards by the time he started shooting, so he reinvented quite a few things. But, you know, it's about communication. Filmmaking is all about communication. So the storyboard, if you're doing second unit, you'll have a pretty strong list of things you're supposed to get that day. I know that uh, in addition to the stuff that you're doing here, I mean, you've actually stepped up. You're the cinematographer, aren't you, for Mortal Engines? I am, I am. That's very exciting. You know, I mean, what was that like? It was a big film. Like, there was a lot going on. Um, it was all on stages. There was just about nothing on location. So on the plus side, we didn't have to worry about mud and rain that much. But on the downside, you're always worrying about how... I don't know how the background actually looks in this scene or you're kind of guessing at what might be there in the background sometimes. Sometimes you know what's going on, and sometimes you're kind of fudging a little bit because you're not quite sure how it's going to end up with the backgrounds. I mean, you're shooting a lot of daytime exterior stuff in a studio, so you have to really light your stages in a way that will simulate daylight really accurately. So, I mean, the trick with a show like that is actually Mortal Engines was quite a fast sort of tent pole. You know, for a big movie like that, it moved, quite, it moved along at a fair, fair pace. So one of my tricks was learning how to lighter stage with the lights that we'd hide in such a way that I could change them very quickly for different setups and for different scenes. So it didn't involve hours and hours of moving the lights around. I could just turn some things off and turn things and some things on. Some lights I'd have on trusses that were at 90 degrees and we could slide them up and down the stage. I was still working with floor lighting as well, but the majority of our base light was sort of in the roof. And yet the film that won you your uh, the gong from the Cinematography Association couldn't be more different in some respects from uh, from Mortal Engines. It's a, well, not small, but it is a documentary about a ballet production and, and, and involved, I imagine, quite a lot of fly-on-the-wall coverage. It was all fly-on-the-wall, actually, um, apart from a few interviews. The Heart Dancers happened immediately after I did the main block of shooting of Mortal Engines, and then the climax of the Heart Dancers, which was the first public performance of the ballet, took place the day before I started the pickups for the next set of Mortal Engines. So <laughs> there was a little bit of crossover confusion there as I tried to wrangle the dates between the, the two production companies. Well, it must be very hard to kind of get your head around it a little bit. I mean, I'm thinking big. No, no, I'm not thinking big. I'm thinking small now. <laughs> I'm always thinking big, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> Do you no. have a preference as far as, you know, great big blockbustery type thing or small catching the events, you know, on the fly like you would in a documentary? Uh, my preference is to mix it up, actually. I mean, big movies, you get to work with lots of resources and big teams of very creative, very interesting people. So there's a very good family that comes with a big movie. But on a smaller project like a doco, like The Heart Dancers, you know, which is only like three or four of us at, at a given time, you're getting into places that you would not normally be able to allow to go. So the, the documentary is a free pass into another world that you don't live in. And I really love seeing different parts of the world that I don't normally live in. Do you have a favourite cinematographer? I mean, whether it's here or whether it's overseas? That's a, tr- that's a tricky question. I mean, I fell in love with the work of Greg Toland when I was um, when mm. I was younger, you know, obviously with things like Citizen Kane and films like that. And I always loved that deep, black, that deep depth of field, black and white photography. Haskell Wexler is a really great cinematographer who I admire. Um, oh, gosh, there's so many. And they all have their own styles. Um, and actually, these days, when I watch a film, I try not to immerse myself in the technical side. It, for a long time ago, I taught myself how to watch it as a punter and then think about the technicals afterwards. So generally, when I take in a film, I'm not really thinking about those things. I'm thinking about enjoying the story. That's ace cinematographer Simon Raby, Gold Award winner for his work on the documentary The Heart Dancers and DOP for the upcoming blockbuster Mortal Engines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.